0: And so this book, if you will, is a handbook of sorts for anybody who sees themselves as someone who wants to create change, solve problems, whether at a, at a micro community level, um, an organization level, um, or I dare say national and beyond level.
1: Hello, and welcome to Books Driving Change, a podcast where I'm Matthew Bishop, uh, talk to authors of books with big ideas about how we build back better. After we come out of the pandemic, today I'm talking with Jacqueline Novogratz, who's the founder and CEO of Acumen, a nonprofit investment fund that backs business-like approaches to uh, building a better world. Um, Jacqueline is an extraordinary leader herself um, and has experienced some really demanding challenges throughout her career, including uh, having launched a microfinance institution in Rwanda that, uh, where some of the leaders there got caught up on both sides of the genocidal civil war. And she is looked to, I think, by many of us for wise counsel and inspiration uh, as we think about how do we contribute uh, as leaders um, to solving some of the most intractable problems facing the world. She's written a new book, Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, Practices to Build a Better World, uh, which I recommend to everybody. And I'm going to be talking with her now about some of the key ideas in the book. Jacqueline, I wanted to start by asking you, for our audience of people who are trying to change the world or feeling called to play a part in trying to build a better world, why should they read your book?
0: Thanks, Matthew, and it's good to be with you. Um, Because the pandemic, if it has shown us nothing else, has exposed the brokenness of all of our major institutions that you and I grew up with. and for so long trusted. And so the issue with reimagining institutions is that we don't know with what yet to replace them. We don't have a step-by-step playbook. Uh, On the other hand, we have seen, and I have personally worked with thousands of change makers who have taught me what it looks like to operate from a moral compass, a framework that puts our humanity, the earth at the center, uh, which we must do if we're going to build the right kinds of institutions to lead us into a more sustainable future. And so this book, if you will, is a handbook of sorts for anybody who sees themselves as someone who wants to create change, solve problems, whether at a, at a micro community level, um, an organization level, um, or I dare say national and beyond level.
1: It is a, a really fascinating tour of people that are Doing amazing work in the world and very inspiring people, Um, but it's also a book that I think particularly appeals to me because of the complexity of so many of the situations people are in and so many of the stories that are told. There's, you know, these are heroes that you're writing about, but they're people that are very real human beings as well. And I think, you know, one of the interesting questions I I was left with was, you know, what's your advice to people? You who know, wanted to get stuck into solving something, um, about you know how to think about that, how to get started.
0: It may sound trite, especially to a journalist, but the best advice I can give is to just start. Uh, I get emails and requests for meetings from so many people who want to know what they should do in this moment. Um, how can they find purpose in this moment? And, um, and I feel that the word complexity is such an important word that you mentioned that because we don't have all of the answers, we have to live ourselves into them, if you will. And so see a problem that attracts you, take a step toward that problem. And that step will lead you to the next step. And it's something I've been practicing all my life. And as as I think about Acumen's next 10 years after completing our first 20, in many ways, I feel like we're just starting again. And I think that for all of us coming out of this pandemic, and many of us are going into a new wave of it, we almost have no choice but to just start using beginner's mind, taking a step, trying, being willing to fail, and, um, and letting that lead us to the path toward the next level of solutions.
1: I'm very struck by, you know, you tell a story early on in the book about when you were a college student and you wanted to help uh, some poor communities in Virginia and you and you went out with a bunch of goodies that you'd raised from your fellow students and, and in the end, you know, sort of dumped them on the doorstep and, and ran away and led mm-hmm. you to an enormous amount of introspection. About, and I think it, it could have captured to me a lot of the dilemmas that people feel when, they think about trying to help someone who's in a very different and you know, less privileged situation from where they are. How, what, what, what advice do you, did you take from that and lessons do you have from that?
0: Yeah, and in a way, Matthew, it goes back to Just Start. Um, you know, that was the beginning in so many ways for me of wanting to make a contribution, raising a holiday meal for a very um, underprivileged family that I knew absolutely nothing about. Um, and as you said... When we finally found this house uh, in this, not very rural, but it felt like a distant world, I suddenly was overcome by shame because I didn't know who these people were. I didn't know anything about their children. I didn't know what kind of toys or games the children liked or didn't like. I didn't know if the parents had told their children anything about where Christmas was coming from. And... um And I think that was the beginning of a recognition that we need a different level of moral imagination. That, And by that, I mean, had I really been so serious about change rather than simply, quote, unquote, helping, I would have done the work. I would have started with empathy, which is what clearly drove me. But I wouldn't have ended there because empathy by itself reinforces the status quo. Nothing changes. I would have immersed myself, gotten close as Brian Stevenson talks, gotten proximate um, to understand what was going on with uh, with the families and the community and um, and then analyzed what they needed more systemically than certainly I was doing, and if I wasn't willing to do that work to find an organization that was and so I, I think that that concept of moral imagination of um Seeing problems and yet being willing to put ourselves in other shoes and building from that perspective is so critical, and it has been so missing, not only in the charitable sector but the private sector and and certainly the government sector.
1: It's interesting. I mean, obviously, the book is titled Moral Revolution, and you know, the word moral is sort of it's become sort of weighed down with. Yeah, certainly a sort of sense that it's a simplistic view of the world, um, you know, ideological and so forth, and and you know, doing you know very black and white way of thinking. Whereas obviously everything you are talking about in the book is is actually more nuanced, um, and you know, your notion of morality is is very much in that putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Um, why do you think? Why why did you choose to focus on that particular message?
0: Word, um, and of course, I wrote this book prior to this last year, in which words like moral and revolution have taken on new meaning. the The idea of moral is absolutely the antithesis of a set of rules prescribed from on high. Uh, rather, it's a willingness to move from a practice of leadership that has been driven too much based on money, power, fame, that I can only win if you lose, that I can only be right if you're wrong. And instead, focus on what is good for the community? What can I do to serve others even before I serve myself? Um, The moral here is that willingness of recognizing that in an interdependent world, where we have to contend with what our shared humanity really means, that that requires a navigation, if you will, between and among different belief systems. That is super uncomfortable. And yet if we keep to that North Star of our shared humanity, um, I believe we can build new moral frameworks that are based on the ancient, but is in an ancient that we all share, not that certain groups feel that they hold domain over.
1: And... You know, it, it, it seems like, for some reason, the public has become more and more drawn to a different model of leader, the sort of leader that is an otherer, you know, that kind of wants to sort of strengthen a tribalistic approach and, and bash people that are different. Why, why do you think that's happened? And then and do you, do you, what makes you hopeful that other sorts of leaders could still make a comeback?
0: It's such, a, it's such a pertinent and important question. But part of my life history is intermingled with the Rwandan genocide. Um, I started a bank with five women. They ended up playing every conceivable role of the genocide, not only being murdered and bystanders, but being perpetrators. And so I really had to wrestle with both. How did that happen? Um, you know that the age-old question of how do very good people do very bad things, and if you go back to the nineteen late eighties, early nineties in Rwanda, you had a situation of economic insecurity um, and a very strong leader and group of people. It's who um, reinforced this idea that um, that that you should be afraid and blamed other people for it. And what I concluded after many years of thinking about it, spending time in prisons, talking to people there, was that um we make everything so simple. We have a false binary. We see people as monsters or angels. Good or bad. When in fact, monsters and angels exist in every single one of us. And that the monsters are really our broken parts. They're that they're our petty insecurities, our griefs, there are um, our fear of reckoning with, the, with who we are in so, so, so many ways. And those are precisely the moments where strong men, where demagogues find it easy to prey on those insecurities, blame other people and make us do terrible things. And we're seeing that. Um, but I would say equally, Matthew, we are also seeing the antithesis of that. We are seeing a new generation um, say enough find ways to build more diverse, inclusive, um, hopeful institutions recognizing that it's the harder path in the short term, but it's also the most resilient and anti-fragile path.
1: You have a very sort of interesting discussion of identity um, that goes throughout the book but, but it's concentrated in particular parts of it. Um, which you know build on that notion that that we have both angels and and a bit, but a bit of the angel, a bit of the monster in all of us, and we're not the worst thing that we've ever done. But and, and equally, you have know, this great quote about we're not a drop in the ocean, but the ocean in every drop. Um, that gets at this multi- multiplicity of identities that we're all trying to navigate in in the world, particularly if we're in a leadership role where we can become very Worried about being pigeonholed as a particular thing, but you know, I think probably you and I both—we're white people. People think we're—you know—they notice that. They notice that maybe we've had some privileges. Although I think in both her cases, we've would we look at other white people and think some of them are more privileged in the lives that they've had. But but that's not the only identity that we have. And yet, at the moment, we seem to be, particularly in America, into a period of very narrow identity um, politics. How do we overcome that?
0: I actually think we've been in these periods before and um, the, the overcoming is to do more practice of using our different layers of identities of means of connecting rather than of dividing. Uh, I've been very influenced in and in part uh, trying to make sense of what happened in Rwanda and after 9-11 when we also became very tribal um, just along different lines. Um, by the writer Amin Malouf, the French-Lebanese um, extraordinary writer, who talks about a hierarchy of identities. He talks about having, as you said, Matthew, multiple identities within us. And it's not just the ones, the identities that we can see. It's all the identities as well that we can't see. The, you know, I'm um, the eldest of seven, uh, grew up Catholic, uh, travel all over the world, Love color, love music, love South Asia, East, West Africa, a global citizen, community um, believer, marathon runner. And so how do we hold all those identities and recognize that when one piece of our identity is threatened, it, it goes to the top, goes to the top of our hierarchy. And, and, and it can become the only thing that we are, at least in that moment. And it's very easy for other people to impose that identity on us. And I think that's where so much breakage has happened historically and where there are truly wounded communities that we've got to reckon with and reconcile with. And at the same time, find ways into conversations that open up our commonalities. And so I'm not saying everybody get along. I do believe that we need this time of reckoning in a very powerful way. And we need to find within it where we are um, able to create a sense of of the collective, of our shared values, of our common heritage and move from there. And that is not important only within nations. And you see that going on across the United States and, and the UK. I um, mean, frankly, in all the countries in which we operate, but also globally, and I think that's also what makes this moment complex, and it's why we need to to find those role models who are willing to go into that uncomfortable territory to see discomfort as a proxy for progress, and to model what this looks like to reach across, as Jacinda Ardern did during after the terrorist attacks um, at the mosques in Christchurch, um, in a very quiet powerful way, Uh, not only was able to say, I see you to the Muslim community, but to model what it meant to be a New Zealander and a global citizen. And it's that combination of uh, listening, seeing strength that I think we all need to practice more of.
1: I mean, just in the, uh, there's such an inspiring political example. I think obviously a lot of what a lot of the people that you're working with at Acumen are business leaders. They're people who've chosen to address a social challenge through creating a business of some kind, and, and Acumen provides this sort of long-term patient capital to support those business leaders in that mission. And I think one of the, uh, I think a lot of people, one of the questions a lot of people are wrestling with as they look at this current you know, divided world with this. Tremendous problems brain from the pandemic through to the climate change you know, threat that is, is looming over us. They're asking, you know, do I go into, the, should I go into politics? Should I go into government? Should I go into traditional non-profit sector? Should I, can, can I do it through business? How do you advise people as they, young people, as particularly as they come to you and ask about, you know, is, is it really possible to change the world through business, or would I be better off going into government?
0: I don't think there's a better off. I think there's a more of a self-reckoning. Who are you? Where do you thrive? But in terms of business, I've really come to see the possibilities in this time of so much fracturing. If we're conscious and being conscious is a big piece of this, I've really come to see business as a possible tool for peace. We do so much work in post-conflict areas, um, Matthew, where... In some cases, charities have worked or government for a long time trying to support local communities and often ended up creating a lot of dependency. Going in and creating a company like de Colombia in the post-conflict areas of Colombia is hard. It takes longer because if you build it from that consciousness that this is about supporting the farmers providing them with more than fair wages, but seriously sustainable income and partnership, well, then you're not going to build that business overnight because you have so many barriers to overcome, to build trust, to build skills, to build networks, to build infrastructure in some cases. Um, And yet I've seen time and again where a partnership with the Aruaco. Uh, indigenous group of northern Colombia, or Tumaco, which is another post-conflict area, riddled with the cocaine wars. I've seen community come together across lines, build trust, income, an ability to plan for the future, and a sense of ownership. We need more of that.
1: It's interesting. There are so many big businesses now feel that they are talking about their social responsibility in a way that was sort of unthinkable 10 years ago. Um, and I guess you know, the journalist in me is sort of immediately skeptical about a lot of this. How how would you sort out the sheep from the goats in that sense? What are we looking? What what tells you that a big business leader is authentic when they're when they're actually talking about their social obligations and responsibility?
0: It's a it's a great question. I, I do think narrative matters, and we are at the beginning of a new narrative, and so um, within it are a lot of phonies. Um, and yet there are those who are making very concrete, specific goals um, made public to the world, and we can hold that those individuals to account and they know it. I'm thinking about um, Ken Fraser of Merck, who I think it was with Jeannie Rometti, um, made a commitment to not just hire a million um, African Americans in the next decade but to help them build their capabilities and skills um, so that they move more into career. I'm thinking of Alan Jopi of Unilever, who made a um, commitment to build living wages throughout the supply chain. For a $2 billion company, that is just the most audacious goal. And I know how hard it is to build inclusive supply chains because Acumen does it. Um, my inclination is not only to hold to account, but then to see how we can support. Because if we can get those role models in addition to the kind that Acumen has supported, sometimes in partnership, um, then I do think we start to see a shifting zeitgeist. Equally, Matthew, we have to call out um, those individuals who hide behind ESG or you know environmental, social, and governmental standards and do a lot of greenwashing. And I think that's beginning to happen. And indeed, I've been talking to a number of new companies that are becoming both activist investors and supporting those that they believe in the long-term will create more value because they are thinking about the environment and doing something about it, insisting on better jobs in often in disadvantaged communities. And for the long-term, that's what will lead to value. Um, but they also are going after the ones that don't. And I I think that that, that's going to be very healthy for business, um, which increasingly must play a role, not just to make profit, but to serve society.
1: And you wrote your book before the pandemic, and I'm I'm wondering, you know, if you were writing it today, what would be different?
0: Very little would be different, Matthew, except that um, I think I would be even more powerfully focused on the opportunities that we have to use the tools of the market yet not be gentle on the market. I might title the book The Moral Imagination in Crisis because I think that in every single chapter whether we're looking at holding tensions or the way that we listen or how we partner or how we use markets without being controlled by them um, there is an infusion of moral imagination that is necessary I have seen the most stunning new business models emerge out of this moment of so much despair and suffering. Uh, just quickly, too, because I think it starts to give a sense, a real roadmap for the future, which is that we don't have to be bridled by these systems. You know, we are the system. We can create the system. So one is a company called Every Table in Los Angeles, which essentially... Um, eight restaurants, fast, nutritious, affordable food. Uh, the first day of lockdown sent out a tweet uh, to the community saying, you know, if you need food, we'll deliver. Lots of rest- restaurants did that. What Every Table did though, was remember purpose. If you cannot afford it in these low income communities, let us know, we'll deliver it anyway. And then they put up an additional link. Uh, if you're willing to pay it forward, Here's a link. Small philanthropists, you know, individual contributors gave five, 10, $25 to buy food. And over time, government saw this, government partnered, and by now they've they've reached 6 million people um, with meals during the pandemic, wildly increased the number of jobs they have, and now have a plan to create 40 franchises over the next three years, enabling their employees to run and own those franchises. So the instinct was others first and the recognition that you could build a business not only with the tools of the private sector, but in partnership with philanthropy and in partnership with government. And I believe we're going to see a lot more of that.
1: And you said there was a second example.
0: The second example is in Pakistan. And so you've got a a fellow named Sars Khuram Saeed. She essentially always wanted to do telemedicine, but the most low-income rural women... Didn't want to just use consultation through an app, and so Sarah ended up building 26 clinics. But the doctors, the women doctors in Pakistan, would use the telemedicine to interact with the uh, the clinical worker, who would then meet the patients. First out of the day of lockdown, government declared private clinics uh, non essential. They didn't want people gathering, and so um, all she had was her app. So her instinct, same thing counterintuitive, give it away. Um, It's an emergency, she said, here's my app, it's free if you need it. Again, it released this energy. Not only have 350,000 people used the app, but doctors from across Pakistan and then beyond Pakistan in the diaspora signed up to volunteer their services. Um, Government then partnered and she too, not only now has a new model, she's the first woman Uh, in the country to raise a a pre-series A at a million dollars. And I predict with a lot of confidence that this model is going to be part of Pakistan's healthcare system um, done in partnership between private sector, government sector, and civil society.
1: I I think one of the joys of, of your book is that there are so many great examples like this that are Positive, inspiring narratives, but also they're not. There's no sense of this being BS or marketing. These are real people, grounded in very real situations, struggling, um, overcoming struggles, sometimes not overcoming, but then learning hopefully from what, what what doesn't work. But often, in the cases you have, I mean, there's some amazing impact that's had for for good. And so, I, for that reason alone, would would commend the book to. Uh, be, to people who are thinking about how do they get involved in, in building a better world um so much solid um wisdom to draw on in the book for, and, and leadership lessons from you Jacqueline I would just like to finish by asking you you have this audience of, of, of people thinking about change, what they can do to change the world one challenge mm-hmm. or piece of advice to them maybe a challenge to them about why now why do they need to embrace this manifesto for a moral revolution? Mm.
0: Thanks. Yeah, Matthew, You know, one of the things I would say that I, I didn't fully understand until after I wrote the book, which goes back to the beginning of this conversation, is that um, this is a book for doers. Uh, we've seen the power of saying what's wrong with the system and we need people who are articulate and able to do that. Building a new system, is long, hard, challenging work. And so if that comes through the stories, then hurrah, because the the, the work of change is not for people who want to sign up for the work of easy. On the other hand, what I would say, I guess three things. One, that it is in the difficulties that we find our meaning, that it, we find our purpose, that we're both intellectually and emotionally challenged. And that we grow the most as well as have a chance to do the most in the world. The second is that 35 years into this work, people often say to me, you know, how are you still so passionate about what you do? And I say, you know, I wish they had told me when I got started that there was beauty every step of the way, even in some of the most disastrous and painful parts. And clearly in this book, there there are There are many of those, but there are also just opportunities for extraordinary connection, finding ways of showing up, seeing physical beauty in sometimes the most awful places. And so I I don't think there's a richer life than the kind of life that is possible if you commit to something bigger than yourself. And the advice I would give beyond just starting is to Ask yourself first and foremost, what is the cost of not starting? What is the cost of not daring? And then having the courage to take that first step, even if you fall flat on your face like I did more times than I would like to admit. But to, to keep telling yourself that this world needs you and the, this world needs the best version of you. And I truly believe that we find the best version of ourselves by extending and and asking what we can do to bring other people dignity, other people the opportunity to flourish. Um, and uh, maybe that's the best secret of all.
1: Well, you've written an incredible book that's, that's so wise and so inspiring. And I commend it to everyone listening to this podcast. Jacqueline Novogratz, thank you very much for talking uh, with me today for... Books Driving Change.
0: Thank you, Monty. This is Arabella Meyer, Editor-in-Chief of Driving Change. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please leave us a review and rate us. And if you'd like more, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about us, please visit us at drivingchange.org. And follow us on social media at underscore driving change. Until the next time, this is Driving Change.